0: In last week's program, we wanted to talk about uh, this article on plastic bags, inspired by a letter to the Sacramento News and Review by a man named Travis McGee, who commented on a previous editorial in the paper titled "The Oceans Are Dying." Mr. McGee, the urgency of this opinion piece is not overstated. Our oceans are dying, and not just due to climate change and overfishing. The Pacific garbage patch is twice the size of Texas and growing. This plastic pollution is killing millions of fish, seabirds, and sea turtles every year. The throwaway culture that plastic bag corporations have promoted for decades comes at the expense of our ecosystem. Too much of this trash heap comes from things we don't need, like plastic grocery bags. Nothing we use for a few minutes should last hundreds of years in our ocean. This year, Sacramento City Council should follow in the footsteps of cities like San Jose in passing legislation to ban single-use plastic grocery bags. We need our elected officials to take this important first step in reducing plastic pollution. Shifting to reusable canvas bags is a permanent way to protect our oceans from this imminent threat. Well, I have to say, I'm not ever taking plastic bags again from the grocery store. I have two canvas bags that so far I've mainly neglected to use, but they're both in the car, and by God, I'm going to start using them, and I hope you'll do the same, dear listener. Well, as we mentioned in passing on last week's program, Mr. McGee's optimism that this will solve the problem... Maybe a bit unfounded. The current issue of Rolling Stone is an article by Kit Doucette called The Plastic Bag Wars, which I think we need to quote from. The subheadline notes The world consumes one million plastic shopping bags every minute, a million a minute, and the industry's fighting hard to keep it that way. Quote from the article American shoppers use an estimated 102 billion plastic shopping bags each year year. That's more than 500 per consumer. Named by the Guinness Book of World Records as the most ubiquitous consumer item in the world, the ultra-thin bags have become a leading source of pollution worldwide. They litter the world's beaches, clog city sewers, contribute to floods in developing countries, and fuel a massive flow of plastic waste that is killing wildlife from sea turtles to camels. Article notes, many countries have instituted tough new rules to curb the use of plastic bags. Some, like China, have issued outright bans. Others, including many European nations, have imposed stiff fees to pay for the mess created by all the plastic trash. But in the United States, the article notes, the plastic industry has launched a concerted campaign to derail and defeat anti-bag measures nationwide. Article quotes Amy Westerveld, founding editor of Plastic Free Times, a website sponsored by the Nonprofit profit Plastic Pollution Coalition, saying it's just like big tobacco. They're using the same underhanded tactics and even the same lobbying firms that Philip Morris started and bankrolled in the 90s. Their sole aim is to maintain the status quo and protect their profits. They'll stop at nothing to suppress or discredit science that clearly links chemicals and plastic to negative impacts on human, animal, and environmental health. Made from high density polyethylene, a byproduct of oil and natural gas, the single use shopping bag was invented by a Swedish company in the mid 60s and brought to the US by ExxonMobil. Introduced to grocery store checkout lines in 1976, the t shirt bag, as it is known in the industry, can now be found literally everywhere on the planet, from the bottom of the ocean to the peaks of Mount Everest. The article notes the first nationwide ban was enacted a decade ago in Bangladesh after plastic bags clogged storm drains and caused massive flooding. China issued a top-down order banning plastic bags in June 2008, just two months before it hosted the Olympics. That was an effort to reduce the amount of what was called white pollution. Even though the ban is openly flouted by street vendors, it still has made a tremendous impact. In the first year alone, China decreased its use of plastic bags by two-thirds, eliminating 40 billion bags. A Move that, by the way... Saved the equivalent of 11.7 million barrels of oil. While other nations have effectively cracked down on plastic bags, the United States government has been left to local communities to fend for themselves. In 2007, San Francisco became the first American city to ban ban plastic bags. Since then, a growing number of U.S. communities have introduced 200 anti-plastic bag measures. The widespread mobilization against these bags has sparked a counterattack for the plastics industry, which was slow to react to the rising tide of negative sentiment among consumers. Leading the charge, the American Chemical Council, as we mentioned on last week's program, an industry group whose members include ExxonMobil and Dow Chemical. We talked about how the ACC defeated a a, uh, a law in Seattle against plastic bags, and article notes that last year the ACC weighed in to defeat a b 1998, a proposal here in California to ban the use of plastic bags in supermarkets, liquor stores, and convenience stores statewide. The bill was in, was supported by a broad coalition, including major grocers and retailers, as well as recyclers and environmentalists. Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger then told Rolling Stone, in California, we put together a coalition of grocers, environmentalists, and labor to confront this issue head-on. And it's my hope the coalition will continue fighting until single-use plastic bags are an ancient memory. Well, notes Rolling Stone, the ACC, and its members were determined not to let that happen. In the months before the vote, the industry spent $2 million on contributions to key legislators, extensive lobbying, and media ads that portrayed the ban as a hidden tax on grocery bills that create a new state bureaucracy. Yielding the industry pressure, the state Senate rejected the ban by a vote of 21 to 14. Even some industry insiders lamented the decision. Noted Robert Bateman, president of the bag manufacturer at Roplast Industries, AB 1998 was not perfect, but it would have settled the issue and we could have all moved forward. Something is curious about this article, and I hope we can get some help from you, dear listener. That is, if you know something about the legal field, According to the article, in an even more disturbing tactic, the industry has begun filing lawsuits against activists who raise the alarm about plastic bags. The suits, known as Strategic Litigation Against Public Participation, or SLAP, are a form of corporate bullying designed to intimidate and silence opponents who lack the resources to defend themselves against billion-dollar companies. The industry has sued every city or county in California that has passed anti-bag legislation demanding that local governments pay for expensive, independent studies on the environmental impact of eliminating plastic bags. And in January, three leading plastic bag manufacturers filed suit against Chico Bag, a small California company that makes reusable shopping bags, accusing it of causing, quote, irreparable harm, unquote, to their business by defaming their product. Chico Bag was founded by Andy Keller, an unemployed software salesman who visited his local landfill after an afternoon of landscaping and was appalled by the blizzard of plastic bags he saw floating around the dump. That same day, he sat around his kitchen table and started sewing together his own version of an ultra-thin, reusable bag. Since then, Keller's become an outspoken critic of plastic bags. The industry is suing Chico Bag in South Carolina, which is, by the way, the home state of Hillex Poly, the major bag producer. South Carolina offers little protection against slap suits. Although the lawsuit could put Keller out of business, the article notes he has few resources to devote to such a prolonged legal battle, it has backfired on the industry, drawing even more attention to the excessive waste caused by plastic bags. Here's another story we naturally must continue to follow. All right, and in other news on how to improve the environment, we have um, the following from the Letters to the Editor section of New Scientist magazine. Someone wrote to suggest that, someone wrote to say, one suggestion to combat climate change is that we should become vegetarians, as livestock is more environmentally damaging than growing crops. However, if we stopped eating meat, livestock would still live. So the suggestion, so is the suggestion correct? Are we expected to cull any remaining pigs and cows? was generated this coherent answer from Jan Horton from Tasmania, Australia. The largest proportion of any crop is inedible for humans. All that biomass has to go somewhere, and the easy thing to do is feed it to animals that process it into meat. The sheer volume of low-grade waste is too great to process for biofuels, and the cost for other forms of disposal would be massive. If it is not removed, the next crop cycle will not be able to be planted. Rotting plants produce greenhouse gases too. Other animals will move in, multiply hungrily, and deal with the biomass. They will also produce the same greenhouse gases as cattle do now. In Australia, this will probably fall to rabbits, kangaroos, camels, wild pigs, and buffalo. As my university lecture says, given the same area of land, you can feed a lot more people on bread and pea soup than you can on steak. But you can do it for a lot longer and with fewer problems if everyone gets bread, pea soup, and some steak. The cattle eat the pea vines and live on the pasture which is used to rotate the wheat and pea plots. The dung and urine can fertilize the soil and humans get to eat steak here and there. This is a complex process without any easy solution, so don't feel guilty about eating the odd steak, just ensure it was grown largely on pasture and crop residues and not transported too far. Of course, we remind you that Jan Horton is writing in Australia, where presume the cattle graze on pasture land. In America, most of our beef cattle are fed corn. We've talked about this in the program before. It's a blueprint for disaster, and disasters have ensued, and it's a process that needs to be changed. For its part, New Scientist refers readers, in this case you, dear listener, for an in-depth analysis of what would happen if we all stopped eating meat. New Scientist suggested that uh, the listener... Or slash reader, look up What's the Beef with Meat from their July 17th, 2010 issue, which was on page 28. I'm sure that's available on the web somewhere. And when it comes to environmental issues on health, this correspondent is stunned, stunned to note that the current issue of American Family Physician, which is a medical publication aimed at family physicians, has both an editorial and an article which really surprised me. The article is titled, Slowing Global Warming, Benefits for Patients and the Planet. The editorial was on the physician's role in efforts to slow global warming, and they even have an information section, basically a handout included, as this magazine frequently does, for the patient, titled Global Warming and Your Health. Now, I hasten to point out to you, dear listener, that th- this was not an article asking if global warming is real, what can be done? It's just like taking the position that, you know, it's happening. What can we do about it? This is, of course, the position being taken everywhere in the world, uh, except the United States. The only major political party or, or force to be reckoned with, other than the oil and gas industry and a few other, we can name like perhaps coal, other than those with a vested financial interest in this, the only major entity we know of that's in denial this is taking place is the Republican Party in the United States of America. The, uh, the information from your doctor section lists three places where um, the patient can get more information. And think, I think I'll mention all three. They are the Environmental Protection Agency, which is described as having scientific information and helpful resources, including a link to a website about global warming for kids. Second is the Meatless Monday campaign, which offers up recipes to help you start cutting meat out of your diet one day per week. And finally, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration for bicycle tips and information on getting around on bikes. But to quote a bit from the editorial in AFP magazine, efforts to reduce the carbon footprint of hospitals include healthcare without harm initiatives, healthy food and healthcare campaign, and balanced menus challenge. These initiatives complement... Efforts to Educate Patients About Reducing Meat Consumption, outlined in Dr. Parker's article, by changing hospital food procurement patterns to help prevent and mitigate climate change and related adverse health effects. Editorial notes the links between our industrialized food system and climate change include, 1. Fossil fuels that are consumed to run farm machinery and transport food, 2. Fossil fuels related to heavy reliance on pesticide and chemical fertilizers, and three, industrialize livestock production, e.g. fossil fuel intensive grain to feed livestock, deforestation for feed production, and pasture. It goes on to note that steps that healthcare facilities can take include procuring food produced in systems that eliminate the use of toxic pesticides and chemical fertilizers, using ecologically protective and restorative agriculture, and getting physicians involved in policy change. This correspondent is fascinated to see this article in a family practice magazine and um, quite curious to see what the reaction is going to be from the medical community. All right, and another editorial that, that we find ourselves surprised to be in agreement with because it comes from the New York Post, a Rupert Murdoch publication, are some comments by Julian Sanchez who noted that we saw last week when the House Judiciary Committee approved the Protecting Children from Internet Pornographers Act that that the government now has an invasive mandate that would do little to protect kids while treating every Internet user as a presumptive criminal. Sanchez says this ill-conceived law would require Internet service providers to retain their clients' digital addresses for a year so that law enforcement officials could snoop without a search warrant. Sanchez says... As if more information would help. The government already lacks the means to investigate more than a fraction of the 100,000 tips on suspicious activities it gets every year from Internet service providers. And apparently nobody's explained to Congress that tech-savvy criminals can easily evade detection with easy-to-obtain software. If this law passes, the future of the nation's computer networks will be driven not by business or engineering concerns, but by the legal mandate to facilitate central tracking. The end result will be higher monthly bills, less privacy, and poorer services for the vast, innocent majority of Internet users. I do wonder about all these powers we're giving the government to Snoop when it does appear that police resources, uh, well, they just don't seem to be um, effectively ...being aimed at petty crime. As you will know, dear listener, I was complaining bitterly a few months ago... ...about having my wallet stolen in a location where I thought we had a fight and shot to get the perp... ...and the police were utterly disinterested. So when two weeks ago, after noting a very suspicious uh, SUV and trailer in my neighborhood... ...I was tempted to interest the police in this, in this vehicle, but, but did not... ...and unfortunately I then saw all of my potted plants stolen off of my front porch... These were large, substantial potted plants requiring a couple of people to move them and presumably put them onto the trailer (laughs) that was suspiciously parked earlier. But uh, I talked to my neighbors about this and one of whom is a judge and suggested that there was no sense even bothering to file a police report. Keep in mind when I say this that I have the license plate of the questionable vehicle. And I was assured that nothing will be done. So you have to ask, if the police aren't going to be policing, what do they need all this extra information to seek criminals for? The criminals they already have seem to be swamping them. I mean, that's without probing what you're looking at on the Internet. Now, I don't want to soft-pedal the issue of of, of child porn. Uh, that is something I would like to see, you know, the book, very, very heavily thrown at uh, perps in that case. But, jeez. But, one has to wonder what use uh, the police are going to make of, of new powers to probe what we're looking at on the web. Anyway, another editorial I agree with. Uh, this one I'm not surprised I'm agreeing with that it comes because it comes from Buzzflash.com. This is worth a quote or two. Article by Robert Creamer. Said Creamer, Standard and Poor's downgrading of the U.S. Treasury bills and its sanctimonious lecture about its concerns that the U.S. won't get its fiscal house in order are like reckless drag-racing teenagers teaching a safe driving class. Wall Street in general, and Standard & Poor's in particular, have done more to contribute to America's budget deficits than anyone else in America. This is the same firm that maintained their AAA ratings of the mortgage-backed securities that were being used to gamble on Wall Street right after the time that Lehman Brothers collapsed and set off the global market meltdown. Their reckless disregard for any modicum of due diligence in determining the soundness of the financial instruments traded by Wall Street allowed the speculative bubble that caused the Great Recession to grow and ultimately explode. The U.S. gross domestic product has yet to recover to its pre-meltdown levels. That is the single greatest contributor to all the increases in the budget deficit that have happened since. And of course, it is directly responsible for the job deficits that is the real underlying disease afflicting the American economy, costing up to 8 million American jobs. But, said Creamer, that's not all. The big Wall Street banks lobbied for years to deregulate their operations. That lack of oversight, including lax regulations of rating agencies like Standard & Poor's, led directly to the meltdown. And, of course, the big Wall Street banks did everything that they could to stop the Wall Street reform bill that passed last year. They continue to work hard to undermine the regulations intended to implement it. When it comes time to pay their fair share to reduce the deficit, Wall Street's done everything it can to lower tax rates on the rich to the lowest levels since before the Great Depression. Let's remember that the people with the highest incomes in America, hedge fund managers, pay a lower tax than their secretaries do. Just 15%. All the while, as they pontificate about the need to get America's fiscal house in order, they twist arms to make sure that people like hedge fund manager John Paulson, who made $5 billion in income last year, that's $2.4 million an hour, don't have to pay higher taxes. Paulson had more income last year than the gross domestic product of five nations. Well said, Mr. Creamer. And I think on that fiery note, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax.